Take your Bibles and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you would, please. <clears throat> Happy Father's Day. <laughs> All the dads are already going, yeah, yeah, it's nap time. Please leave me alone. <laughs> uh, this is undoubtedly the best holiday of the year, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Unless it's not. You know, I'm painfully aware that for many people, Father's Day is uh, a bad reminder of the failings of some man somewhere. On December 11th, 1989, a man by the name of Lindsay was 51 years old. He had a lifetime of pain at the hands of his dad. As a matter of fact, the worst time of the year for Lindsay and his uh, siblings was Christmas time. He said he remembers many times his dad taking he and his siblings out to the farm around Christmas time and being worked and being berated, being beaten to the point of blood everywhere. And he said that after a while, the brutality of his father, especially at Christmas time, was such that caused him to hate Christmas. His family was attached to one of those great, what we call classic Christmas movies called White Christmas. And uh, so every year at Christmas time, his family was, that was brought to the surface and the movie was shown and he was forced to watch it and he hated it because it reminded him of the brutality of his dad and the harsh words and just the systematic tearing him down as a kid. And so on December the 11th, 1989, Lindsay well, actually, the day before that, watched that movie, White Christmas, one last time. And he went out and he took a shotgun on December the 11th and he put it up against his head and he pulled the trigger. Later, they found these words written, I hate Christmas because of Pop and I always will. It brings back the pain and the fear I suffered as a child and if I ever do myself in, it will be at Christmas time that the world, that will show the world what I think of Bean Crosby's White Christmas. For the record, that was Bean Crosby's son named Lindsay. Father's Day should be a time when we celebrate what's right with the way God put together the family. It's not that way for a lot of people. This morning I was watching my devotional program on Fox News. <clears throat> Always good for sermon support, they are. And they were doing some of these uh, Twitter hashtag trends. They had asked the question. And a number of people wrote in that were just filled with hatred about Father's Day. Why should we even have Father's Day? Why should we celebrate a day for a man to do nothing when he does nothing the rest of the year? If you were one of those who sent those in, I hope you'll listen a little bit today. But this is really not intended to be a Father's Day message per se. But it is a good message for fathers on this day. I, I asked yesterday on social media what uh, 
what was kind of the cheesiest Father's Day gift you had ever given. I did that because I wanted to protect some of you that your kids might read something that you said, you know, the cheesiest gift you ever got. But uh, I, I didn't get a whole lot of responses to that, and I'm probably a little bit glad about that. But I do want you to think about the gifts that you have received on Father's Day, but mostly today for you dads especially, I want you to think about the best Father's Day gift that you could give to your family. Because the reality is, if you happen to still be a dad with children in your house, that if they live long enough, they will get old just like you did, and they're going to leave your house, and they're going to go out into a world, and they're going to be citizens of this world. And much of what you put in them will bubble to the surface in their lives. What is the best thing you could do for them? And I want to take it and I want to apply it on a much broader scale for us today because I don't want to just pick on dads. Uh, one of our members this morning suggested that I might give dads the permission to go ahead and sleep through this sermon. You can take your nap now if you want to do that. That's fine. You may miss something. All of us need this message today. Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth who were getting church wrong. They had multiple levels of failure in the way they were doing church. And most of them, matter of fact, I would say all of them fell at the base point of how they treated one another. And so Paul, in this extended discussion of how they should get their worship right and how they should get the things they were doing as a church right, he interrupts the whole flow of everything and he camps out on this one concept about love. How should we treat one another? It's a great message for fathers and mothers and people, especially people who call themselves Christian. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the last part of verse 4 going into verse 5, Paul says it is love is not arrogant. And especially today we're going to get to the point it is not rude. Actually, I want to take three different examples or characteristics of love that he gives today. We'll make a little bit of tracks here. We only got two more sermons in this series after today, so I need to make tracks. And he says, love is not rude. It it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. He goes on to say some other things, but let's deal with those first. And so first, let's take this one, love is not rude. What I want to do today is I want to start with each of these in, in a picture of unlove. Now, that may or may not be a real word, but we're going to use it like it's a real word in here today. The picture of unlove. In other words, Paul is laying out for us what it looks like. He takes the negative side on some of these descriptions. Love is not this way. And the reason he does that is because they, the Corinthian Christians, were very much that way. And he's trying to say to them, the way you are and the way you are behaving is not what love is. Love is not rude. So I want to take the unloved description first, and then I'll flip it around and show you what it is, and hopefully we'll pull it together to say, here's where we can work on it on a day-to-day basis. Yesterday, Teresa and I had to go do some grocery shopping. I told the earlier service today, finally, our daughter got married, and she's gone, and we have money for groceries again. It's a great day at our house. And so we went to the grocery store together yesterday, and I know I have to surrender my man card for that. That's okay. It's worth worth doing. So we went to the grocery store, and as we pulled into the grocery store, some lady apparently, I'm going to look around, make sure she's not in the room here today. Um, Some lady apparently knew what I was preaching on this morning, and she wanted to give me a great illustration. 
So we pulled in and it was one of those days when the heavens part and angels sing. And you know that it's a great day because as I pulled into the parking lot, a parking space right in the front opened up. And I'm old and I'm fat and I don't want to have to walk very far. And so I saw this parking spot. I went, incredible. And so I go to pull in and just as I start heading towards that parking place, this lady... Kid slung on her hip and pushing her parking, uh, park, her grocery basket with her other hand. She pushes it right directly in. Now, you need to understand, there's a parking space, and she's in her car next to it. And then next, on the other side of the parking space is one of those cart corrals, you know, where you put carts. Word, do us all a favor and put your cart in the cart corral, just being in the vicinity. This is not darts, okay? You don't get extra points for being close. So I pull in, and I'm about to get into the parking place. She takes that kid slung on her hip, and she pushes that cart directly sideways into the parking space next to the cart corral, fully blocking off my parking place. Now, I believe that's evidence of a communist And in my nice, see, I've been studying on this message, right, thinking about it all week long. And so in Christian love, I thought to myself, I just, I just won't even tell you what I thought to myself. I will say this, okay, I thought that this poor lady needed a nice Christian education about what it means to be polite to preachers needing close parking places. She didn't care. She pulled it, blocked the parking place with it, got in her car, and started backing out after she emptied trash onto the parking lot. Now, in my mind, okay, the, the human part of who I am wanted to let her know just how insensitive that was. At best, insensitive. And by the way, if that was you today, I've repented of my thoughts about you. That kind of gets to this word that we find here. Paul says love is not rude. Rude is it's not necessarily a bad interpretation, but it doesn't really capture the word uh, like it needs to for us. Your translation might say love is not unseemly or something like that. The word here, well, let me, let me sit this way on the front side of it, okay? It's, it's, it's kind of a disturbing word for us if we happen to be selfish people. Love is not rude. The, the root word or the base word for us in this actually is a word that we get scheme from. Or if you like an engineer, you, you know, a schematic. It's, it's, it's the blueprint, if you will, on how to behave. You ever buy one of those pieces of furniture that comes in a box? Now, when we move, Aaron and Stephanie are moving into their home and they have, you know, we, some of us help move their stuff in and I didn't see any of these kind of boxes for them. Uh, so he may not be aware of this, but, uh, we, when we moved in, we needed an extra piece of furniture and because we're high class, we went to Walmart to buy it in a box. And, uh, it's one of those things that we, <laughs> you pull it out and it's got 11 dozen pieces. 
You know what I'm talking about? This, you pull it out of the box and it looks great on the picture. Even at Walmart, they've got it put together. It looks great. I'll have one of those. Well, here's your box. And so you take your box, you take it home. My son and I, my 30 year old son, who's the analyst of the whole family, we lay it out and we get it all over the living room floor and we start trying to put it together. You know what I'm talking about? Those kind of things. You, you know, it's Father's Day. So let me just speak for fathers here. Save a tree. And don't bother putting instructions in those boxes for us, okay? You know what I'm talking about? They have these little booklets of how you do go from step one to step two, and you use these pieces. They have them all labeled for you. We don't need that, okay? We're dads. We got this. That's, that's the schematic, okay? That, that's the guideline. That's, that's what they put in there for people like me. But I gotta tell you, I can put those things together and get to the backside of it and have extra parts even, and it works. Brilliant. Genius. The book. The schematic. The guideline. That's this word. So, so what, before we even get to it, that's not exactly this word, but that's the base of it. Before we take the next step, let me make sure we get this. There is this basic truth for us that we need to get that when it comes to our dealings with other people, God has a design for us. If we will work within the design, life is useful. If you don't follow the schematics of putting together those things, you might have something that might work for something, but it won't work the way it's supposed to. That's the picture. That God, and it comes to our dealings with other people and our love for them, our investment into them. God has a design for that. When we follow his design, works supremely. But the word here, because Paul's saying it from the other side of it, love is not unseemly. It's not rude. The picture here is a word that we just talked about, the scheme thing, the schematic thing. It has a letter attached to it that flips it on its ear. It's the opposite of that. So we might say it this way, love is seemly. It is What's the right way to say that? It is graceful. It is honorable. But Paul's writing this to a group of people who haven't been doing that. So they've been dishonorable with one another. They've treated each other disgracefully. They've treated each other as if they don't really matter. They've treated them indecently. That's the word that we're talking about here. How do we treat people according to God's design? He lays it out for us and says, if you will love as I love, this is how you will treat people. Paul writes into a church, not just the first century century Corinthians, but even to us. Down through the centuries, he's writing to us, saying to us, the way you treat people matters. And when you handle each other rudely, or outside of the design, then you're doing damage to people. We might even say it this way, you're killing people with the way you treat them. So let's get it back to the dads for a second. Dads, how do you talk to your kids? You ever talk to them 
as if they're idiots. I know we have a lot of kids, a lot of young ears listening in here, and I usually try to be really sensitive to that. So I want to choose my words carefully here. But you know, through the years, first of all, I've been a dad for a long time now. Secondly, I have a dad. And thirdly, I've been around dads a lot. And I know that the reality is for many of us as fathers that we can get so tied up into the stuff of the lives that we're living that we can shoot our mouth off and say something to a kid and we can say something as great as I love you and say it in such caustic, acidic kind of language that our kids hear that and it just causes them to wilt internally. How do you talk to your kids? Gracefully or disgracefully? Rudely or honorably? God has a design. And if we'll operate within that design, even the times that we need to correct our children, or I'm taking it now to the larger church, and that is anytime we're dealing with one another and there needs to be some of that kind of correction, some kind of interchange that says this is not at a healthy level. We don't have to do it in a terrible, harsh kind of way. I'll give you two examples, a negative and a positive. I'll show you what I'm talking about. We'll move on. Both of these involve me. I'm going to give you several illustrations from me or our family life today. It's, the main reason I'm doing that is because it's easier than me just putting it on you and you think that I'm being mean to you. Okay, I'm struggling with you through all of this. One of the things that many of you know about me, but probably nobody really knows the way it used to be, is I am highly competitive. Uh, I feel like, and I was raised to feel like, that if you're going to do something, whether it's a sport or anything else, if there's other people involved, you must win. And if you need to, it's okay to destroy people in order to win. That's how I was put together. Okay? So, not long after Teresa and I got married, um, we decided to join our church co-ed volleyball team. Big mistake. The reason it was a big mistake is because I play to win, all right? A, by definition, in that church anyway, maybe it's every church, I don't know, but in that church, if you're on a co-ed church volleyball team, you're not playing to win. If you were, most of those people wouldn't make the team, or at least that's what I thought. Teresa, she grew up in a sheltered environment, and she thought we we're just playing for fun, <laughs> like that's even possible. <laughs> and so we go, we haven't been married hardly any time at all. Probably just freshly back from our honeymoon, and we go and play church co-ed volleyball, which is, well, uh, so we go play this game, and I'm playing to win, which means there are people on the court around me who really should have stayed home. And so I start playing around them. You know what that means? Jumping in front of them, playing the ball, that kind of thing. And because of them, we lost. And I, in a nice, calm way, let them know that it was their fault. Probably had something attached to it, like, you know, why were you even born? You know, that kind of stuff. Teresa never said a word in the midst of all of that. Until we got in the car and on the way home, she said this. You know, 
you really embarrass me when you act like that. Love is not rude. It doesn't operate outside of the lines of what is appropriate in dealing with other people. And the way that comes across in church often, we don't have a church volleyball team here, so you know I'm not going to play if we get one, okay? <laughs> I learned my limits, okay? But the, the reality is that you don't have to have a church volleyball team for people in church to be destroying one another with the way they talk about each other or to each other. If I could put in a percentage pie chart kind of thing, how many discussions I have with church people that somehow tend to gravitate towards tearing some other church member down, it would astound you. And most of those conversations never make it to my office. They're usually done other places. Love operates within the boundaries. If you're a dad here today, you need to hear the story of Bing Crosby's son. Because you may feel good about manhandling your kids, but let me tell you something. Those kids are learning from you, and they will go out of your house into a world, and they will manhandle other people, and love has no part of that. Love failed in your house. Love is not rude. Here's the other one. Here's the positive side of what this looks like. When Teresa and I were in college, making almost no money between us, um, our big day out every week was to go to Taco Bell at lunchtime on Tuesdays when they had their menu for a dollar. Big day out for us in those days. Maybe it is for you in these days. Um, but in those days, I was doing two part-time jobs, full-time student. She was a full-time mom and also working at a bank locally. And so we would meet at Taco Bell on Tuesdays for lunch. And this particular day, some of our friends came with us, and uh, they were not married yet, uh, but they were dating. And so I was friends with him, and she became friends, Teresa became friends with his girlfriend. And, and so we would meet there, and we'd do that whole Taco Bell thing. And so that day, as we were there, I got my tray first, because after all, I was hungry, and she was behind me. And so I'm walking to our table, just kind of clowning around with a friend of mine. And as I took a step like this, I hear behind me, oh, Mark, in a restaurant crowded Oh, Mark. And I turned around and I looked. I knew I was in trouble. I mean, and I turned around and looked. And uh, apparently, apparently you're not supposed to step on those little things of taco sauce that are laying on the floor. And when I stepped on it, it shot straight up and down her in her bank working clothes that she was wearing. Now, I... We've been married a long time now. I'm pretty sure I know what she would do now. But in those days, she was very grace, gracious, grace-filled, very within the boundaries of love. All she said was, oh, Mark. <laughs> You see, you can communicate, dads, church people. You can communicate, and you can communicate well without destroying people. You don't have to go off on them. 
Just because you say it louder doesn't mean they get it better. Love is not rude. The second one here, I want to save, and I want to come circle back to it in just a moment. That's where it says love does not insist on its own way. But the third one I want you to get from this is towards the end of this verse now, and it says love is not irritable. Here's the picture of unlove as we get it to this one. Love is not irritable. Now, you remember what I said about me being competitive? Now, the older I got, the more I realized that it was impossible for me to be competitive with a lot of these young athletes that did church sports. I used to play softball all the time, that kind of thing. Well, the older I got, the more I realized uh, I, I just frustrates me to be on my team. And, you know, for me to be on my team was a terrible thing for the team. And so I took up an individual sport. I started playing golf. Now, if you don't play golf, I will pray for you. I'm not sure what you'll do when we get to heaven, but we'll pray for you. You'll discover the game of golf. And so I started playing golf, and the competitive part of me was uh, I thought if, I, if I'm going to play golf, I'll play with these old guys, and I can beat them. The problem with that in golf, it don't work that way, okay? The old guys are the ones smart enough to figure out, just hit it down the middle every time. You don't have to hit it as far. Just keep it in the middle and it'll work. So I started playing with these old guys. They started beating me. So then I started going, I'll just go out there and play alone. And I started playing these games with myself, the competitive part of me. So that is, if you hit, I started keeping track of every time that I would drive it off the tee box, to kept it in the fairway, okay? As opposed to getting it out of the fairway. It's easier to hit from the middle. So I started keeping track of that. I started working on that. Every time I'd go out, I'd have a goal. Okay, on these uh, 18 holes, I want 15 of them to be in the fairway. And I'd count the number of putts that I was doing. So all of those kind of things. So when I went to the golf course, it was work for me. Wasn't any relaxation to that. We're getting better. And so into that scenario, Teresa one day says, Hey, Lauren and I want to go to the golf course with you. Oh, man, surely not. Well, she didn't like to play golf. She had tried that before. She didn't go for that. So, but she did like to drive the cart. So I said, okay, that'll be great. Come on, that'll be fine. Let's take Lauren. Lauren is less than two years of age. She's the one we married off the other day. At this point, she's nearly not quite two years old, right? Two-year-olds on a golf course, when dad's trying to be competitive with himself, not a good mix. So we had to train her. We tied her hands and her feet together. Well, she could, no, we didn't either. I'm just kidding. Okay, I did not do that. I would not do that. I certainly don't recommend that you do that. Okay, We trained her that when it was time for me to hit the ball, she was to stop, sit down, be quiet, and be still. And she did a pretty good job with that. She did a really good job with that, actually. And we got to this one day, and I was having one of those rounds where it was, like, incredibly good, and I was on the verge of having my best round ever playing golf, and I was going, God, see, this is working. And I got up on one of the last holes on the first nine, and I got up there, and I went to hit the ball, and Lauren, the golf is one of those you don't know. You face this way, but you hit it this way, Right? And you don't want, I didn't want Lauren in front of the ball, obviously, and behind me because of the club could hit her. And so I would have her sit opposite where the ball was, and she'd sit down and she would watch the ball and be quiet and be still. And she had done that fairly well through the whole deal. And so I get up there and I go to hit the ball. And about the time I get in my backswing where I'm about ready to come down on the ball, okay, for you golfers, that's a critical moment. About the time I started my downswing, Lauren said, Go! 
man, that ball went that way, and my club went that way, and my temper went just like that. You ever have those moments with your kids, dad, when they don't do something exactly right, or they do something at exactly the wrong time, or maybe they just get in your way when other things have been going bad? Irritable. Love is not that way. It's a great word that we have here. Not easily angered. Actually, the picture of the word gets us better, I think. Let me go back and tell you. Remember my dog, the dog that's on crack? Nanook, the white dog in my backyard? Nanook uh, has a bad habit. He, he loves southeast Texas. He's glad that we moved here because he's got a big backyard. And that backyard is fairly inviting to wildlife. Squirrels, he catch, you know, he capture a squirrel and he'll bring it to the back porch for Teresa. And, uh, you know, that dead birds and that kind of, he loves it there. But occasionally, Nanook gets provoked. Now, I know that because in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and I'll hear him outside, rat, 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 just on and on and on and on. Now, I gotta tell you, I'm nice, calm, cool, collected, under, you know, filled with the Spirit of God and calmness and peace and all of that. And as soon as I wake up and hear him doing that, I'm ready to de, oh, and I won't say that. Uh, somebody's going to lose his head in this deal because I've already lost mine. Does that help you, son? He's provoked by a possum or something outside. And so he starts barking. And his barking provokes me. Isn't that a great picture of life? You go to work and somebody's having a bad day and it provokes you, and so you just start having a bad day. Isn't it interesting how that works? We live to the lowest common denominator too often. And so we let the people around us begin to influence how we're going to approach the day. For those of you moms who are at home and you got kids, you got kids everywhere, even though there's only two of them. They're everywhere, they're everywhere. And they start having a bad day and it starts working on you. Or your husband comes home and he's had a bad day, so now you're having a bad day. And all of that comes together for us. And we just, all of us, let's just all have a bad day. Love is not irritable. It doesn't live at the level of expectations that other people are going to handle you well. Close of the first service this morning. One of our guys came up to me and said, I've got a great story about that provoking thing. I said, okay. He said, guy gets in an elevator. His name happens to be Mark. Thanks, man. He gets in the elevator and he's talking to a friend of his and another guy gets on the elevator and he's holding an umbrella and a briefcase and all that stuff. And so he has to reach down to do it. And when he reaches down, his umbrella starts poking Mark right in the chest. And Mark, boy, his buddy sees him. He's getting mad just like that. The guy gets to his floor and he gets off. And as soon as he gets off the door shut, Mark says to his friend, that guy poking me in that, man, he made me mad. His buddy said, no, he didn't. He just poked you in the chest. You chose to get mad. Tell me that's not like us. We put our lack of control over off on other people. It always comes down to a choice for us. Love is not irritable. It is not easily provoked. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with 
life of unlove that's marked by rudeness, living outside of the boundaries. It's marked by being irritable and diminishing another person because of how you respond to who they are. The one in the middle matters. It's actually pretty close to the center of the entire passage with Paul. And it bubbles to the surface, and it's the one that captures all of these other characteristics of what love is. Love literally, it says, does not seek the things of itself. In other words, love is not selfish. It's selfless. It's a good time for me to remind you of our definition of of love at this point. It is the investment of one person into another person. It's the giving of self, often at price, at cost. I have to invest in Teresa as my wife. And sometimes that caught, well, I'll just take it off her. Let's put it on my daughter. I had this guy come into my house last November. He comes into my house and he says, I want to marry your daughter. I'm good with that. But attached to that, I'm going to spend your money to do this wedding thing. Hello, what? You're going to do me a favor and I'll marry off. I ought to get at least a camel out of this deal. I didn't get that. He waltzes into my house, eats my food, says to me, I want to marry your daughter. And oh, by the way, we're going to get married in six months and it's going to cost you money. For the ceremony. This world doesn't work right. I was happy to pay that. I'm getting rid of a daughter. That's not right. I'm happy to pay that because I love my daughter. And I love him. You see what I'm driving at here? Love costs you something. But his deal with me, he steps in and his agenda now suddenly adjusts my entire agenda for six months. Every waking moment. How are we going to pay for that? What's that going to cost? You see what I'm saying? Love costs you. And you invest in this other person. And they may or may not even appreciate it. But you invest in them. And in investing in them, you bring them to a level they could never achieve on their own. Best example of that is Jesus Christ, who left, according to what we find in Philippians and other places, he left the splendor of all of heaven and all of the incredible parts of who he is as God. And he stepped down into this ugly, sinful, fallen world. And he did that to make you better, to give you life that you could never have gotten on your own. And then he says... The way I've loved you, you love other people. Love is not rude. It's seemly. It fits in the pattern. Love is not selfish. It's selfless. It is a giving thing. And it's not provoked. It doesn't allow you to respond to people who don't do you correctly by doing them incorrectly in return. Love says, for the good of you, I will do this. So how is it with you? On this Father's Day, dads, 
according to what Paul is laying out for us, how much do you love your children? How much do you love your wife? But I don't want to leave it in the laps of dads today. Because the reality is Paul writes this to a church who was missing it in loving each other. So how much do you love us? Let's pray. Father, as we come to this, we recognize that the implications of a message like this stretch into the very fabric of everyday life for us. Whether it's in a parking lot or in a living room or a dining room or in that athletic field of competition or in the hallways of a church or behind the wheel of a car or sitting in a classroom. It really does matter how we treat people. And we desperately need your help. We're so eaten up with self that the idea of being selfless just doesn't taste right. So give us a good solid dose of awareness of how Jesus handled himself. Give us that constant reminder that you allow us that example, but that example must inform how we live every day. Help us to handle people well. Help us to love people like you do. In Jesus' name.